Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Kevin Beller. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillon. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 168. Kevin Beller heads up the engineering and new product development departments at Seymour Duncan. Kevin does the electronic and mechanical design, pickup design, tooling and fixture design. He has worn a lot of hats in his 40 years at Seymour Duncan by starting out as production supervisor and manufacturing engineer in 1979. So, Kevin, my first question is, how did you get started with that and how has it changed over that 40 years, like the industry? Well, uh, I I started out actually as a, a performing musician. I had an engineering background, but I was still at this point trying to make my way as a performing musician. And I, I knew Seymour. He was a, a he was a repairman in a local music store, and uh, and I just met him through the music store. We got to be good friends. I I was bringing instruments to him from time to time to have repair work done, and uh, and. Uh, at some point he left to start his own business i think around 1977 or 78 and uh, he was just in a small garage at that time you know a little garage shop and uh at some point in time uh you know i used to go to visit him all the time i'd be picking up instruments taking instruments in there and uh, at one point his wife kathy duncan said well do you think you'd ever want to work for us and i'm like no i don't know you know i got a pretty good job now i'm working for a computer firm and i'm doing engineering work and it's not so bad, and uh, you know, at one point I had uh, I thought I was going to make my way as a professional musician. I had quit my job, and I was with the original band, and we were doing recording and big live performances, and uh, and that whole thing just came apart uh, about as quickly as it went together. And uh, and I remember telling Seymour the story, like these son of a bitches, you know, they're they're firing me i can't believe it me and the drummer and the singer and everybody they just broke the whole band up and uh and so wait, uh, wait, wait. was the bass player just firing everyone it, it was the uh the two there were two brothers that were the songwriters and and they also had money backing and connections in the recording industry and they just they came in one day and go well we feel like we want to go in a different direction than the rest of the band we just fired me the bass player the drummer and the singer who was an incredibly talented uh, singer they just came and wiped the whole band out in one big sweep and i'm like oh crap i I left my job. I I had a good job before, and now here I am. I'm out in the streets, and you know I'm telling the story to Seymour. And uh, I, about a week later, I get a, a call from Kathy, and she says, "Well, do you think you're about ready to start working again?" And I go, "Well, yeah, I guess so. I'm running a little low on money. You know, I think I, I think I'm ready." And uh, at that point in time, those guys were just you know they were in a small two bay garage, and just getting. You know, just thinking about uh, introducing the first line of humbuckers, and uh, but they didn't have drawings or any designs or anything. Seymour had basic uh, coil winding designs that he had uh, derived through doing years and years of rewinds, and uh, but but no bobbins, bottom plates, magnets. None of none of the uh, raw materials had been designed, and that was really my first job when I came in. I spent the summertime. Uh, just designing all the uh, bits and pieces for the humbucker line, getting it all documented and and ready to go. And by the end of the year, we were producing our first humbuckers. So that was really the start of it. And um, as time went on, uh, you know, I went from just getting the production line set up. They really didn't have any experience with production. I had managed uh, uh, production lines in my 
uh, prior job of I had a big uh, group of technicians that we were doing specialized uh, process development and uh, in the ceramics and ferrites and some fairly specialized material fields. But you know, I was really hired for my experience as a manager more than as an engineer. But I pretty quickly evolved into the uh, engineering role. Within a year, I was doing the bulk of the new product design and managing the production floor. And I gradually just sort of phased myself out of the, the production work, it's, which is, to me, a, a real pain in the butt. It's not my favorite thing. I mean, it's definitely an important part of the process. But it, for me, the design work is what I love doing. And, uh, and you know, and I try to limit myself to that as much as possible. I mean, we, we still have our production issues and I have to jump in there and, and help out however I can. But, uh, uh, you know, if, given my choices, I would stay in the room and just design product all day long. Uh, that, that would be my, you know, my ideal world. Is that what you do now? Well, that would be ideal. Uh, I, I manage the engineering department. So we have a you know, we have a, uh, about, uh, there's four of us in the department uh, on site, and we have uh, one other off-site engineer that works from his own shop uh, down in Ventura. And uh, so I manage that part of the uh, design process. You know, we, obviously we have more uh, throughput right now than what, the, what I could potentially handle. So we have uh, multiple engineers, uh, mechanical and electrical, digital, analog. And uh, then uh, I also manage the new products process. So that means uh, you know, making sure that the entire uh, um, process from the uh, concept to completion to production gets, uh, happens as smoothly as possible, that we're not dropping details along the way, that we're taking care of everything that needs to be handled. Uh, you know, product design, the uh, documentation for the manufacturing of the product, um, all the, um, you know, the setup in our own production line, uh, proper fixturing, tooling, um, just, you know, really handling everything, making sure that it all gets done and we deliver a product according to schedule or at least as closely according to schedule as we can manage. So before we keep going is... I, we never explained also what Seymour Duncan as a company is. So people might be a little confused. <laughs> well, uh, Seymour Duncan started out as purely, uh, um, actually I would say in the beginning before I worked there, it was more of a, a rewinding service where Seymour was uh, uh, working with some pretty big name uh, musicians, rewinding and uh, you know customizing their pickups uh, for their particular uh, the sound that they were going for. Uh, so yeah, I have a question on that is is why because I'm not a musician at all. Um, so why would you rewind? Like I'm gonna guess the electric pickups on a guitar, correct? Right. So you would rewind them uh, during the 70s and 80s. Most people's opinion were that the quality of sound coming out of Fender and Gibson instruments had degraded significantly from what it had been in the 50s and the early 60s, early to mid 60s. So that that was because of a number of reasons, but mostly it was because the Fender companies and Gibson companies had been bought by large entities that weren't necessarily interested in, in musicians or musical instruments 
other than as a way to make money. So they were they were basically letting the accountants have their way with things, and and they had done a lot of cost cutting. And in amongst all that cost cutting, they had really the quality of the instrument itself had degraded, and the quality and sound you know the tonality of the pickup had been significantly degraded so that really opened up a big opportunity for guys like Seymour to come in and and rewind those pickups rework them to have uh, either reminiscent of old vintage instruments from the 50s and 60s or to create whole new sounds uh, that that were uh, kind of worked with the style of music that was emerging in that time. So that was basically how the company started. And then at some point we, we started making our own versions of Fender and Gibson pickups and, uh, and some of the other manufacturers, but primarily in the beginning Fender and Gibson, that was what the majority of the marketplace was demanding at that time. So th that was the start, but we, in the eighties, we expanded into amplifiers and speaker cabinets and uh, I think we discontinued amplifiers by about mid-90s, and by the late uh, 90s, early 2000s, we started getting into effects pedals, which we still do today, and now we're just now getting back into uh, some, a, a line of very compact uh, amplifiers, what we call fly rig amplifiers that are really designed for musicians to be easily able to carry on an airplane or on a, a fly gig. Uh, we're, we're sort of back into, our, a little bit back into our roots again with, with amplifiers. And, and we've been doing pedals now for almost two decades, actually. And we, we hope to continue with the kind of success that we're, we're just starting to see now with it. It's a pretty highly competitive market. It's a bit of a tough, tough road to uh, hoe. Amplifiers too, you know, they're all, highly competitive, lots of guys out there doing it, and uh, you know a lot of choices for the end consumer. So you have to somehow rise above all that and get people's attention, which can be pretty challenging. Well, and, and actually it's interesting because that kind of leads into a little bit of a topic that I want to bring up is, uh, especially with, with a company that is a, a tad bit larger and has some more overhead, uh, I, I would love to explore the idea of, of how an engineer like yourself, sells a creative idea to both the market, but also internally at your company. In other words, you have some idea for a new gizmo or a widget or effects pedal or amplifier, and it's going to be the best thing ever. How do you uh, sell that to your team? And how do you sell that to Seymour himself? And how does that go from just an idea into reality? Yeah, And, and to expand on that question, it's, you know, it, most engineers, they deal in specifications and data sheets, and they have a list of things they need that the product to do. Whereas, in my mind at least, music is very subjective, and whether or not something sounds good or cool, for lack of better words for that, it, it, how do you? Yeah, how do you make that something that's that that you know you go yeah let's design that let's spend a hundred hours of engineering on that yeah a hundred thousand hours <laughs> yeah yeah. Or, yeah or more yeah yeah, yeah. it can uh, <laughs> we can easily get into two thousand hours on some more complicated design projects but anyway to answer the initial question uh one of the advantages that we have here is uh out of the 
five guys in our engineering department, three of them are actually musicians. So that really helps. We have musical background, we've studied music, we've performed on stage, we uh, understand a lot of the challenges that musicians face, and we, we have a, after this many years, you, you develop, even if we weren't musicians, you develop a pretty good ear for tone and what sounds good. Now, putting that aside for a second, musical tastes and musical styles are evolving, changing and evolving all the time. So whenever you come up with, whenever I come up with a creative idea that I think is the greatest thing and I wanna pursue it, one of the first steps is to try to confirm that what I think is a great idea is something that a lot of musicians that are in today's market also think is a great idea. I've been surprised any a number of times thinking that I had the perfect way to do things only to after working and working and working with you know personally working with musicians I find you know I was just not understanding it when it first started when we first started our discussion and through dozens of hours of discussion you finally come to the understanding of what that musician was really looking for and, and so the first thing is to like dispel your own assumptions and try to get to the root of what musicians really want. Uh, and, and don't assume that just because you think you have the perfect engineering solution that that's gonna translate into the perfect uh, musical or the perfect tonal solution. It, it doesn't always. You, you get wrapped up in your own head and in your specifications and like, yeah, I got the perfect specifications going, this makes total sense to me. And you present it to the musician and they kind of, yeah, you know, it's okay, but uh, yeah, I have this other one over here that I like a lot better. I've been using it for the last 20 years. So it has more volume. It more volume. It has more vibe. It, it has more more mojo. It, I mean, yeah. you know, you you have to be able to to translate all those things into into engineering specifications. So that's the first step: is making sure that you have at least the best understanding that you feel like you can get of what musicians are really looking for. Then selling it internally can be a challenge. We have a lot of musicians that that work here. We try to populate the sales and marketing department with predominantly musicians, and, and not really a hard thing to do. There's a lot of those guys out there that need jobs, but um, you 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 develop a working relationship with them, and and you try to sell the idea to them on uh, an emotional uh, basis or on a common sense m musical musician basis, and you convince them and really what it always gets down to is building a prototype go down to the sound room and let's listen to it and and if they like the sound then they're sold if they don't then you just you do this collaborative uh process of working back and forth and uh alteration of the design modifications breadboarding uh sometimes you know you might have uh, six hours in a day of listening and quickly going back and tweaking, listening and tweaking. So you go back and forth with that process and uh, you come up with something that everybody agrees is really cool. Okay, so that's great. Now we're all on the same page. We all think this is a great idea. All of us musicians in here think it's a great idea. Now you got the accounting people and uh, the uh, CEO and the CFO and all the money side of the business that you have to build a case for. 
So that's when you get into getting into, you know, deriving your bill of materials, your cost models, your competitive analysis. You have to be able to show, first of all, that this is a good idea on financial level. Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes you have to convince people that really you need to just compromise your margin a little bit because this is such a great idea and people are going to love this so much that the marketing value alone is worth taking a smaller margin. So there's certain logic that you have to adopt sometimes in convincing uh, the uh, monetary aspects of the business that you should go ahead, they should go ahead with this, approve it because nobody is able to just go and develop a product and buy all the materials and deliver it unless you're the sole proprietor. You always have to be able to convince other aspects of the business, especially, I mean, we're not a big business. We're a small business. We're probably uh, just around 100 people. It's not like Fender or Boss or somebody like that, but there's still enough people here involved in the uh, in, in the various managerial aspects that you've got to be able to make your case and it has to be made on multiple levels. Going back to that one thing where it was taking a smaller margin, is that to like raise more like top level awareness for Seymour? Like you would do that to raise more market share, so to speak, right? In the in that industry or sector, right? Yeah, a lot of times, you know, uh, and people do this all the time. You know, they have lost leaders or. Uh, you know, in order to uh, attract attention, to demonstrate your skills as uh, being able to develop cool products, get people's attention, you you sometimes have to do that. Now, you know, taking a loss on something is definitely not, uh, you know, a desirable thing, but, but you can take a small margin on something and still make it you know, somewhat profitable and, and develop your name and bring customers on board and, uh, you know, do other things that are beneficial to the long-term uh, uh, prosperity of the company. Sure. So kind of going along with that, this is, this is more of, a, of an interesting kind of concept when it comes to design work. In this realm uh, or industry, I've found that it's acceptable to break a lot of rules for the sake of the final product. So take, for, for instance, like there may be some magical transistor that you put in this particular position that just does the sound. It does what you're looking for. And that transistor may be three times as expensive as another one that functionally does exactly what you would want the circuit to use, but it just don't like the sound of it. How do you sell that on a bill of materials cost when someone looks at it and be like, I could cut $5 off of this product right now? Yeah, we don't, uh, uh, and you're right, there are certain things like that that you consider, and uh, certainly in audio, there's there's considerations that go beyond just mere functionality. And, and most of those things you can, if you've been doing it long enough, you can actually start to put your thumb on why something that costs three times as much is so much better. Uh, and, uh, fortunately, here at Seymour Duncan, uh, the accounting folks, they don't dig too far deep into the bill of materials and start criticizing, why did you pick this transistor? Why did you pick this resistor? They, they kind of know better than to do that because that's <laughs> where the 
realm of expertise of the engineer can really take over and and we're not going to put anything on there that costs three times as much without a good reason and there is that level of trust in this company where if I say you know I know this parts more expensive but it really is the key to the sound here this is a big driver and why this thing sounds so good why it's so uh, popular why every beta tester that tries it loves it uh, and, and I can probably come up with a technical explanation that would make their eyes roll back in their heads and so in general that kind of challenge doesn't come up here. We take the challenge on ourselves as engineers to go, is it really necessary to have this thing that costs three times as much? Is there another way to do this? Can we find another part that performs just as well but costs more in line with a typical transistor or a typical op amp? We, we stay on top of all the latest uh, uh, developing uh, semiconductors out there. I, I spend a certain amount of my time every day just looking at all the new stuff that comes up. There's tremendous development that's going on out there, and, and most of it's for you know uh, cell phones and for uh, uh, you know uh, smart speakers and smart TVs and all this uh, high technology that's being developed. But there's uh, a lot of that technology can be applied to what we're doing, and, and so I'm. I keep my eye on this stuff all the time. And, and you know, you think, well, I can use that same circuit that I used two years ago for this power supply here. It was a good power supply design then. But no, if you go out and look around just a little bit, you can probably find components that you can do a better power supply that takes up less space on the circuit board and costs half as much. So uh, uh, I try not to get too hung up in really expensive parts. I try to look for other ways to accomplish the same thing. Not saying that you can always find one. Sometimes, you know, that expensive part's just the only way and it's really worth it. But, uh, but I don't uh, take that as my first answer. I really uh, dig in and that's what I drive the other engineers in the department. We are always balancing the cost benefit ratio of just about everything that we do. Because uh, we know that we're challenged uh, to, to produce a competitive price and still have an excellent product. It, 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 but if you hit the wrong price point, you can totally kill a product out there. Uh, you might have the best distortion box that ever was produced, but if you're trying to sell it for $450, most guys are going, sorry, that's what I pay for a whole amplifier and a guitar. I'm not gonna buy a distortion box for that kind of money. I don't care if the thing's gold plated inside and out and it makes coffee for me, I'm, I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> yeah, you can have the best best sliced fuzz pedal since, you know, whatever, and just, yeah, the price is being out of the range. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're still trying to make some money out of, out of this whole thing. Uh, it, it has to be within the price realm that people are comfortable in paying. And you, you can always find a couple guys that'll spend that four or $500 for, for something like a, a fuzz box or distortion pedal or you know, something pedestrian like that. But the majority of guys aren't even going to give it a second look. They're going to see the price and go, ah, forget it. More money than I can afford. Fuzz is fuzz, though. Yeah, that's right. There's some great fuzz boxes that are $120. So, you know, you got to look at who your competition is and what the uh, average price points are. And you find your place in the market and you go, okay, this is the place that we want to occupy. We think that we can uh, get some attention in this 
price point and with this feature set and this is this is our place in the market when i think you said it earlier the, uh, the there's a ton of competition in where in the area that you're playing in and it and the competition really does set the price point like it, 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 for example if someone were to just come up and ask me like what is the general price for uh, an effects pedal regardless of what the effects pedal is i probably have an idea in my mind of what an effects pedal costs so you already have in general a target to shoot for before you even have the idea right right pretty much uh, dependent on the category that we're in so if we're producing a high featured uh you know digital delay or something like that something with a lot of advanced feature sets and a lot of programmability and a lot of you know user customizable uh features then we will have a particular price point for that based on who we're competing with you know if we're going up against strymon or somebody like that we're going to be looking really closely at their uh, products in that in that category and what they're charging for them and what kind of features and what performance we're going to be looking at their uh, noise performance everything about it you know we're going to make sure that we are competitive on every single important feature and if we can meet or exceed everything that they're doing we're going to do it if we can't then we'll probably just go well sorry we need a different price point or we're going for something else so we, we really need to feel like we can meet or exceed what anybody's doing out there with what we're offering. The next challenge is convincing the customer that we've met or exceeded all the competition. That's, that's a big challenge. That is actually what I was about to bring up is how does designing these kind of, you know, it's, it's sound and, and the feel and that kind of stuff, how do you work with marketing as an engineer on that kind of stuff you know um we uh we do a number of things for one as we're developing the product there's guys in the marketing department that are all players so we're working with them to develop the sound to figure out what feature sets it should have how all the knobs should work you know the look and the feel of the product we're working pretty closely with those guys. We don't really develop this stuff in a vacuum at all. We're engineers and and we're really here to make the best possible product, but we aren't necessarily gonna make all the decisions on what features, what shape knobs, what color the thing should have, how the graphics look, what fonts are used. And so we're working closely with those guys to, uh, to to really put the whole package together. And uh, and sonically, we're working with them every day to fine tune the, the sound, how all the controls feel, what the range of the controls are. There's hundreds of details that we work with them. So by the time we're finished with the product, we're all pretty well in agreement of this is about as good as it can possibly be and we're all loving this thing right now. Uh, if we're getting good feedback from our beta testers, positive feedback, and um, and we've maybe oftentimes we, we roll in features that are suggested by our beta testers. So uh, by the time we've finished with the product, we've really broadened our uh, uh, spectrum of, of opinion givers out to where we've got quite a, a you know, we've, we've incorporated feedback from a wide variety of people. So selling it to those guys it really is not hard because they've been uh, per full participants in the process for the whole time how how early do you bring the beta testers in to the design process 
You know, um, we, uh, we have two phases, actually. We have an alpha test phase where there's primarily in-house and maybe some local guys. And we try to get that into that phase as quickly as possible. Uh, I have a couple different ways that I do these things, but generally speaking, I try to get down to uh, a, a complete schematic and a circuit board design as quickly as I can. And I really want to package the thing up the way it's going to be packaged in the end product. So I try to get to that stage. You know, it usually takes, once you've all agreed on the features and we, we do what's called a PRD, a product requirements document where we draw up a, a, a list of all the requirements, all the features, panel layouts or proposed panel layouts. So that might take a couple of weeks to get that that together where we're all agreeing, here's the cool features, here's how many knobs it should have, here's how they should all behave, um, here's the market that we're going for, here's the competition. Uh, so that may take two to three weeks to get that pulled together. And then uh, from that point, we'll start paper design or you know schematics. And it may take us several more weeks to get schematics two to three. And at that point, I'd like to jump into circuit board layout as quickly as I can. And that's where Macrofab rolls into this process because we, we usually uh, ship this design off to Macrofab. And in another three weeks, typically, we, we've got our prototype boards in the Meantime, I might have ordered prototype chassis, or if it's a chassis we already use, we've got our machinists drilling, drilling, and drilling holes in the chassis, and we put you know labels on that we make ourselves, and we build alpha unit, and we get the guys in house to really start listening to it as quickly as possible. Like within the first two to three months, I want to be doing some listening. Sometimes we build the whole thing up on a little uh, proto board, you know, where you poke all the components in and run wires and stuff, and uh, we've done big uh, projects that way in the past where we have, we call them trays. They're like cafeteria trays and we'll have just protoboards spread all over the cafeteria tray and there's wires going everywhere and there's parts everywhere and it's a complete mess. And we've worked with that type of system for sometimes months and that's where you're daily at like four, five, six hours every day with members of the sales department and the marketing department doing listening tests, tweaking, listening, and tweaking. But uh, if we can get into the alpha test phase quickly, like within the first couple months, and then we feel like we've kind of exhausted that avenues of change there, then we move into beta tests where we do the next revision of circuit boards, incorporate all the changes, maybe the circuit topology changes that we've been through, different controls, different panel layout possibly. And, and, and then we, we build beta units and uh, we, we send those out. Uh, we have a, you know, a whole retinue of, uh, of guys at professional level and musicians that we've worked with sometimes we have our favorite dealers that are really pedal enthusiasts that we send it to we also work with some of our major distributors where they have uh you know guys that are uh, players that work for them that are really professional musicians that happen to work a straight job and we send beta units to them to get their feedback and that may take a couple more months two to three more months sometimes longer if you want to incorporate feedback from a lot of beta testers and uh, then we compile all those results. We have a standard beta test form. We try to get these guys to fill that out. A lot of times we end up calling them up on the phone and we fill it out while they kind of rattle off their feedback. <laughs> their and, experience. 
Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and so then we, we kind of roll that all in. And uh, and if necessary, we might do a second round of beta tests. We'll modify the beta units, get them back from the testers, modify them, send them back and go, hey, did we hit what you're, uh, what you're, uh, what you were talking about when you uh, gave us your feedback? Uh, do you think we hit it? Is this satisfy you now? Are you feeling good about this thing, or do you need? Do you feel like we're missing the mark somehow? And so, hopefully, we don't have to go through that process too many times. And then we tie up the design. We do a final cost analysis. Back working with the uh, accountants and the you know, the money people again, and we have to make a final case for why we should be doing this. Here's our cost model, here's our gross margin, here's, uh, you know, all the risk factors, um, here's why we think this is a good product and why we should be doing it. And, uh, and if we get approval at that point, then we go into the production phase where we contracts, you know, con uh, contact our contract manufacturer, somebody like Macrofab, and pass on all of our bill of materials and our Gerber files and all the other uh, documentation that's necessary to start the production cycle. And from there, we might go into like a first article where we order 25 pieces and we bring them in. We do a first production run. This will be the where we roll in the people from manufacturing and they get to get their hands on things and we we do a, a small production run and evaluate how smoothly it gets through production making sure that it's passing all of our our tests you know while while we're doing a lot of this other stuff that i've described we'll be writing a, a, a you know a, an automated test routine we we typically use uh, audio precision gear to automated not to do automated testing and uh, we want to be able to test things in three minutes or less. That's the goal. Not always possible, but in general, that's the goal. That's kind of our budget for testing, uh, you know, how much we can spend on testing. So uh, we evaluate all those things. How smoothly it gets through tests? How smoothly does it get through production? Is there some thing that we need to change in order to uh, make the uh, production go a little bit smoother? Was something really difficult? They struggled with it. We go out there and watch while they're assembling things so the engineers well two or three engineers out there on the line i'll be out there watching the assemblers go through this stuff and going oh man they had a hard time getting that foot switch in there we better do something about that you know we can't spend 10 minutes putting a foot switch in every time uh, so i mean it's it's like a process from from start to finish you know there's a lot of attention to detail that goes into making something it's not just designing and whacking out a prototype and then going in and building it in your garage or something there's more to it than that <laughs> yeah yeah so speak oh, speaking of attention to detail so back when you first start your prototyping design phase is there has there ever been like a design where you did it on proto boards and then you built a board and it sounded different like because of the parasitic inductance and resistance <laughs> of the breadboards and you have to like incorporate that into your audio design. We've nothing. Uh, we uh, check that kind of stuff pretty carefully because that is definitely a possibility. That usually what it is, it's the other way around. When you package everything up really small, there's parasitics that enter into the uh, equation from everything being so close together. And we've had issues where we have oscillation and uh, circuit instability that we have to work out. You know, we have to find ways to stabilize the circuit as we've shrunk it down. 
a lot of times when it's spread out all over a cafeteria tray, it's pretty stable unless you've done something really bad, you know. And then I guess in a way it can be subject to uh, noise and things. So a lot of times we'll expect our cafeteria tray designs to be somewhat noisy uh, because there's so much open circuitry and there's wires running all over the place. So that's the problem at the cafeteria tray stage. When you get it down to circuit board level, the problem becomes parasitics like you were talking about. Okay. Then we have to figure out how to get around that. And in cases where we have what we know is gonna be a sensitive circuit with a lot of signal density and a lot of routing and, you know, we, we will go to multi-layer boards. So we'll, uh, we'll go to maybe a, a four-layer board and we'll have uh, some plain ground plane layers and we'll route sensitive signal in between planes. It's almost like having shielded cables. So there's tricks like that that we use when we know that we're gonna have a problem. Other times it's a matter of stabilizing the circuit, correcting some routing errors that we made or uh, adding some uh, stabilizing uh, capacitance selectively in the circuit to uh, keep something from oscillating to uh, flatten out the, um, uh, you know, the phase response so that you, you, don't, you don't get yourself into an unstable situation. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, has it ever happened where you, you get down the line on a, on a project and just nobody's liking it and you just say, okay, no, this, this is not what we want to do? Yeah, sometimes, uh, you know, you pursue something and, uh, and it sounded good on paper and, you know, you go uh, like, this is a great concept. We should be able to make this work. And you keep after it and you keep after it and you keep after it and you keep you know, trying little variations on the theme and uh, try just altering the design a little bit and you go through your uh, in-house testers. Generally, those types of designs that you're describing, they don't get beyond our in-house testing. We're, we've listened to it and, and, I, and I, you know, it's usually me. I'm like, I think I can do something about this. So I go back and I try things and I tweak it and we put it in front of the uh, sound testers here and no, no, it's not quite there. You know, it's, it's not sounding right. And I go, well, I think I can do it. And I go back and I tweak it some more and I try some more things. And, you know, finally at some point after like four or five rounds of that, of like altering the design, fine tuning it, trying something different, finally go, you know, I just don't think that this approach is gonna make it. So you either abandon the whole design, which is pretty rare. Usually there's always something about a design that can be salvaged, but sometimes you have to go back and rip up significant portions of a design and just rethink it, just do it differently. And, uh, you know, it, like I said, it sounded good on paper, the concept was good, but when you get down to the listening, it's like, nope, sorry, this is just not making it. It's not what we thought it was gonna be. And then you just chalk it up to experience and, and try to find the best way to recover and, and, and salvage what you can and the rest you just toss it off in the trash and start over again. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got a question about um, part selection. So is there, and you, as you, you as an engineer and also as a production manager, I'm going to guess that you really like surface mount components. Yeah, we, in order to package the amount of features into the size of package that people are expecting these days, we feel like you have to use surface mount components. So we do, we so, use them extensively. Yeah, so yeah, that's one of those things is it's, 
when you look at a lot of like the hobbyist audio stuff, they're really big into through hole components. Right, right. Is that is there any pushback or fluxing on on that on that front? I think there's some uh, opinions out there that says, uh, and not a lot, but you know, you have your your gear snobs that believe that uh, through hole parts are better. But uh, yes, yeah, so that's what I'm getting at. I don't think there's any a technical basis for that, and certainly when you're working with through hole or with surface mount parts, you do have to be uh, um, selective in what you're picking. You can't just grab any old part. Same thing with through hole parts, though. But uh, we're pretty picky about what manufacturers we use. We only have a limited uh, number of manufacturers whose resistors that we'll use. We find that the quality on some of the other manufacturers is poor from a reliability standpoint, mostly. Uh, we're also selective on what type of capacitors we use, certain types of, uh, well, any you know ceramic capacitors, uh, certain dielectrics are, are microphonic. So you wanna be careful how you use those. You don't put those types of dielectrics in your input stage. You're gonna have, it's gonna be highly uh, uh, sensitive to like when you click a foot switch or somebody touches the panel, you're gonna be picking up all kinds of microphonics. And in some cases they may actually squawk and squeal and make weird noises. So you wanna definitely avoid that kind of stuff. So you have to be selective. You have to know uh, what parts you're picking. We stick with uh, certain major manufacturers. We don't go with all the really cheap uh, uh, offshore. I, I mean, let me back up. Most surface mount, most components through hole or surface mount are all made offshore. But there's some like no name brands made in China and some other uh, offshore uh, uh, factories that are really poor quality. The majority of them are really good. They're they're good quality components, but there are definitely certain manufacturers like what I call second tier or third tier manufacturers that you want to avoid. And and we just we just rule those guys out. We have our favored uh, capacitor manufacturers. We have just a couple of resistor manufacturers that we use. We're pretty picky on what potentiometers we use. We don't use uh, surface mount pots. We don't use surface mount connectors. We feel like there's a mechanical integrity that comes with the through hole mounting on certain parts. So we insist certain parts are through hole just for for mechanical reliability and mechanical integrity. So so, go, so going back on the capacitors, uh, you're talking about using ceramic capacitors. You're talking about using class one dielectrics, which is C0Gs basically. Right, right. The class two are like X7R and down which are microphonic. Right, X7Rs will be microphonic. They're, they're not a bad uh, capacitor other than the microphonics, but they aren't as stable over voltage and temperature. Things like uh, Y5Us and uh, X5Rs, those things are terrible. We never touch those. They're so unstable over voltage. As your uh, AC is, you know, your signal is going up and down, the capacitance is changing so they're very sensitive to that's voltage. actually that's actually one thing i haven't thought about is because we talked about dc bias on ceramic capacitors a lot which is you know as you ramp up the voltage on a class 2 capacitor dielectric the capacitance goes down i've actually never thought about being using a signal path what you're explaining like an audio where 
your signal is an AC signal, thus the voltage is changing all the time and right. you will, your capacitance will completely widely change. Yeah, it will. And you're introducing tremendous distortion and probably not the good kind of distortion into your signal. Hey, it's up to the listener. Yeah, yeah. But but it's a it's a it's a weird it's a weird distortion. If you look at it on the scope or you listen to it, it's it's a weird distortion. It's not like creating this nice tube uh, low order harmonic distortion or anything like that. It, it's a totally bizarre thing that varies with signal level. And, and to me, that's not something that's under my control. And it will vary from manufacturer to manufacturer. So in the key uh, areas, we always use the uh, uh, MPOs and the COGs or the C0Gs uh, for the most important signal path. Uh, sometimes if we need a, a large capacitor and it's not near the input stage or in a place where it's going to be subject to microphonics, we'll use an X7R. We never go lower than X7Rs. And in cases where we really need a large capacitor, we'll use a non-polarized uh, electrolytic or something, which are actually really nice capacitors. They're, they're, they have a you know, great audio property. So we, we, you know, we try to stay on top of that kind of stuff and and we stay away from certain types of, of surface mount parts. Do, do you ever use uh, surface mount film capacitors? Yeah, we've tried them, you know, the, and I'd love to use them, but nobody is making one that will withstand reflow temperatures with rose compliant solders. That's the big problem. If you're using regular lead-based solder, which you aren't gonna be able to use anywhere much longer, but now if you sell into Europe at all, can't use lead-based solders. You have to use rose compliant. They all require higher reflow temperatures. The uh, the the films, uh, surface mount films, all peel. The the uh, layers peel and they develop cracks. And, and we had an uh, experience with this in a product that we made uh, years ago. It was a graphic uh, or a parametric equalizer for acoustic guitars and. We had all surface mount films in there, and this was just at the transition over to uh, Rose compliant uh, requirements. So we weren't all that familiar with what kind of pitfalls there were at that point. So we get our first run production run in, and we're checking these things out, mapping the you know graphing the response and. The uh, Q was all over the map, and the frequency range of the parametric was all over the map. And like, oh my God, what's going on? We had this thing working perfectly in the lab. So we uh, we dug in a little bit, and we look at the board under a microscope, and we notice all the peeling of the film caps, and and we see that they are all developed cracks in the layers of dielectric, and uh, when they um, when they were cleaning the boards, it was absorbing a cleaning solution inside the capacitor, totally changing the capacitance, totally changing the Q uh, and the uh, dissipation factor of the cap. And it just ruined the circuit. We had to make a quick change and dump that whole first production run and move over to uh, C0Gs at that point. So that was our first big lesson there. It's actually funny as... Um at MacFab, we did like a, I did like a video series, not video series, a blog series on some audio DACs with, with doing a bill material analysis on how it sounded. And the, the, one of the build materials used surface mount film caps and one used C0Gs and people liked the C0Gs and we actually never 
went deeper on why people would like that, but that, that might be why it was, is the film caps actually, you know, became damaged or whatever in reflow. Because typical, you know, people say film caps sound better, but in that situation, we found that the CZOGs just were better sounding. Yeah, they're actually excellent capacitors, the CZOGs. In spite of the fact that they're still a ceramic, they're an excellent capacitor. They're very stable over temperature and voltage, and they're just really, they're a good quality part. And uh, I mean, to me, that's more important than whether you define it as uh, audio approved or not. It, it's, a, it's a good quality part, and, and it has, we've done measurements and, where we took uh, uh, through-hole film caps, and we uh, compared it to uh, Caesar G's, and we found in terms of measurable distortion and noise and everything, the two things were really almost identical. Uh, and, and listening tests as well. We did listening tests, and we and, and this is th compared to through-hole films. So now we, granted, we weren't using the most expensive uh, Solon caps or uh, some fancy, uh, you know, four-dollar uh, capacitor cap that's not the kind of stuff that we can afford to put in our product nor do we have the space for anything that large but we were using good quality polyester and uh, films and uh, so they're considered a decent uh, a decent film they may not be the very highest but they are definitely high up in the in the film uh, category so uh, another quick question is actually going on the topic of trust between uh, the engineering team, the marketing team, and the sales team. Uh, well, I guess there's more teams uh, above and beyond that at, at Timor Duncan, but what, uh, what I'm getting at with this is what happens if the teams start to butt heads? What if one says, this is the greatest thing ever, and one is like, this is the worst ever? How do you rectify those kinds of situations? Uh, well, you know, I guess it would depend on what was being said and what was being argued about. I think ultimately, well, it depends. If it's a technical issue and I'm feeling strongly from a reliability standpoint or something like that, like we had, we had some issues. I'll, I'll just give you an example. Uh, we were working on a power amplifier. It was a fairly you know, 700 watts per channel. So it's it's a pretty beefy power amp. And the uh, uh, the CRO, which is our chief revenue officer, was arguing like, I don't like fans. I don't like how much noise they make. If somebody's using this in the studio, they're gonna hate having a fan. And I'm arguing from a technical point of view, this thing's producing 700 watts per channel. Heat is going to be a major issue. You can't not have a fan in this amplifier. You're going to be taking the things back. People are going to be pissed. They're going to be burning their fingers, everything. You know, there's going to be just problems. We were definitely butting heads on the issue. Uh, so, you know, and I finally just put my foot down and said, we're going to have a fan whether you like it or not, but here's what I think we can do. Uh, I'll... I'll, we'll design a um, we'll design a, a temperature sensing circuit that ramps the uh, fan speed up and down as required. So if you're in the studio and you're cruising along at 15 watts out and you're just uh, you know not creating a lot of heat, then the fan's not going to come on. If you're in a situation in a hot club in Atlanta in the summertime and somebody throws a jacket on top of the amplifier, that fan's coming on and it probably will turn on pretty fast and it's going to go full speed. 
So that that was how we solved that particular problem was, you know, drawing a line saying reliability is more important than anything. Sorry, you don't get your way on this, but here's a compromise position that I think will work for both of us. So you try to figure out some kind of win-win solution. Ultimately, you have to take your customer into consideration and go, what's, what's the most important thing to the customer? Is it a little bit of fan noise or is it something that stops in the middle of the gig? <laughs> I mean, you can't have that. Well, well, the thing is, I'm going to assume once you're running 700 watts through this amplifier, you're not going to be able to hear the fan. No, that's the point. <laughs> that was one of the points. So like, yeah, you know, nobody's going to hear the fan when you're when you're up there at those kind of playing levels. You're not going to hear anything except for what's coming out of the speaker. So it's sometimes, you know, things can get a little unreasonable. People get unreasonable in their position and they get stubborn and they you know, they won't let go of it. But, uh, you know, then it's like a challenge. Okay, what do I need to do to break through this person's stubbornness or their unreasonability and and propose something that's acceptable to them and is still going to meet my uh, technical requirements for reliability, sound quality or whatever else noise level. You know, we're very picky about noise. We pride ourselves in knowing the uh, how to design low noise circuitry and that's really one of the things that we think we bring to the uh, uh, the music industry is a higher awareness of of how to design low noise product and what low noise really means you know how does that translate so this question that Stephen wrote down I, I actually really like it is how much is too much input on creative design so you say you have a lot of people in your sales and marketing department that are awesome musicians. Let's say you designed a pedal that is for a certain kind of musician. And so like, you know, half your sales team doesn't like it and the other half really likes it. You know, do you, do you actually accept the feedback of the people who like a polarizing product, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that could be a problem. And uh, too much creative input can definitely be overwhelming in it you know, it's like designed by committee problem. So uh, we try to, again, keep in mind who the customer is, what the customer uh, is going to want. And then we make sure that the beta testers that we have, so we're designing a distortion pedal and it's primarily voiced for a certain type of metal, then we make sure that we get beta testers that play within that genre and that we're getting feedback from the guys that we're targeting. And if we have a bunch of guys in house that just say, you know, I don't really like that, but I don't play that style of music. And most of the people here, I'd say all the people at this point are reasonable enough to go, not my style, but it seems to be really popular with our target customer. So I'll, I'm not going to insist that you voice it the way I think it should be voiced. I'm going to defer to the customer. That's that's really the easiest way to solve those kind of arguments is go, OK, let's just find out what the customer wants. And and then you have to be ready to, you know, go with that. So that might mean getting off of your position, too. Exactly. It might be worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it may, it may be. I mean, sometimes you lose on these things. You never know. But uh, in general, I think you can't go too wrong in making sure that you're satisfying your customer. They're the guys that are paying the money. We're the ones that are spending it. Actually, so um, kind of that, that sort of brings up a, another kind of a question on on that. So, so if you were, if say say, say everyone liked something that that you were you didn't, but 
everyone said, hey, let's go for this. You then kind of have to get passionate about something that you're not necessarily into. And that can lead to some troubles, right? That well, can make it a lot more difficult for you. Not not really, you know. I mean, ultimately, uh, I'm there to, um, to realize the design. And I don't have to be the guy that conceives of every detail. I... I, I will defer to somebody that's an expert in the particular field that we're going for. If I feel like I'm the expert, then yeah, that might lead to some trouble. But in general, I don't. I don't feel like I'm an expert in all these fields. I I think that, uh, you know, there's people that are specialists. I mean, this is a, we're in the age of specialization now. I mean, try to go to a general practitioner, doctor, everybody's a specialist. So there's no way that you can possibly be an expert in everything. So I'll defer. But then my challenge is to try to get the best possible understanding of what they're talking about so I can convert that into, uh, you know, circuit design and, and component choices and, and, you know, performance uh, in a way that will satisfy their requirements and the bulk of the people in that market segment. So I don't I don't get too personal about it, really, or I try not to take it too personally. Doesn't do sure. me any good. <laughs> Probably doesn't do anyone else good. No, too. no, no. It's no, just, it never does. And all it, that does is create office politics, which yeah, no one yeah. ever wants. We try to avoid. I mean, I think we have right now really good crew. We haven't always in the history of Seymour Duncan. There's all there has been internal conflicts and a little bit of office politics. We're we're still a relatively small company, but right now we have a great crew of people and everybody's kind of really growing in the same direction. And I feel pretty enthusiastic about uh, the the you know the team that we have right now. So those kind of problems don't tend to come up these days. I mean, it could at any point in time, you get the wrong person working here and all at once the balance of the universe is upset. But uh, right now it's pretty good. <laughs> Been there for sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's all I'm going to say about that one. <laughs> um, so Kevin, uh, Stephen, do you have any other questions? Just one more quick one, actually, because I'm just curious about your particular process uh if if you were to just put i guess like a percentage or a number on it uh when when approaching a design and actually physically working with physical components how much do you think that you do rigid design as in like i've calculated this component i'm putting this component here versus i'm just going to put this component here and see what it does uh i'm pretty much a calculated sort of guy uh I mean, I'm not beyond, we, we do a lot of experimentation and, you know, maybe you have an idea like, I really want to try this particular op amp and see how it performs or I want to, so we try a lot of things. It's, there's a lot of experimentation that goes on. So I, I, I mean, while I might calculate a lot of the uh, actual component values, I don't feel like I have preconceived notions of what's always going to be the best thing to do or best part to use. Like I said earlier, the electronics industry is evolving really rapidly. There's lots of development going on. Uh, what might have been the favorite op amp, uh, you know, 30 years ago for the first, uh, you know, 808 or whatever uh, is now completely obsolete by all the great development that's happening at Texas Instruments or analog devices or those guys are doing audio research all the time and they're coming up with great stuff all the time. So I really feel like I don't have 
cut and dried ways of doing things. When it comes to component values, there's a lot of calculating you can do, especially if you're trying to do low noise uh, design. So I have rules of thumb that I apply all the time to, uh, let's say, the range of component values that I work from. I try to avoid certain ranges. Maybe I try to avoid really high circuit impedances, unless I'm working with tubes or something, then, then you know, you're just stuck with it. But in general, you know, in order to have low noise circuitry, you have to avoid high impedances. So that kind of restricts you to a certain group of component values. But, but beyond that, you know, it really gets down to uh, fine tuning and listening and uh, seeing what performs the best, uh, uh, you know, in a listening test. Uh, so if Steven doesn't have any other questions, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'm, I think I'm good. We need to get better at ending these podcasts. No, I'm, tr- I'm sorry. I thought you had something to say there. Nope. All right. <laughs> nope, no, no, no. That was it. So, Kevin, if you want to sign us out. Well, actually, r- real quick, oh, uh, Kevin, uh, where uh, where can people find out more about Seymour Duncan? Well, the best way is to go to our website, SeymourDuncan.com, and you can pretty much find out everything you would possibly want to know. If there's remaining questions, you would call us at 805 805- Nine six four nine six one zero, and speak to anyone in sales or technical support, and they can answer your questions personally. We all—they're all musicians. They understand the kind of things that you might be going through, and they are all very personable. So they can—they can definitely uh, uh, help you solve problems that you might incur uh, in the course of your—you know—your daily effort of being a rock star. <laughs> Well, great. Would you like to uh, sign us out, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Kevin Beller. And we were your host, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Be a rock star today. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG. That is Steven's handle. Or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us. And a quick announcement before you leave this podcast for tonight. KeyCon 2019 is a user conference for a popular open source CAD software, KeyCAD. Happening April 26th and 27th, 2019 in Chicago, Illinois. This is the first and largest gathering of hardware developers using KeyCAD. Talks at the conference will span hardware design, revision control, scripting, manufacturing considerations, and proper library management and getting started developing the underlying tools. All the announced talks have been listed on the conference site, which is in the show notes. And the last I checked, Chris Gamble is going and there's not a lot of tickets left. I think there's like 10 tickets left. So you better get your tickets now if you're going to go. Later, everyone, and be a rock star today.